You know, this week as I began to study, I, I realized that I hadn't gone back and, uh, and looked at what I laid out at the beginning of this series. If you happen to be our guest, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six, uh, 5, 6, and 7. And I had actually laid out the text. I had actually combined some of the verses from chapter 6 and 7 in a different order because they kind of dealt with the same subject. And as I went, <clears throat> I hadn't really gone back and checked on the order of things. And anyway, I realized this morning that I'd messed up. And I have actually these two sets of, these two subject matters that fall between verses 16 and 24. And, and proverbially speaking, I realized that that ship had sailed. And I really couldn't divide the text up by subject like I had done earlier in the in the spring. So we're going to deal with two subjects this morning that seem to be somewhat unconnected. But I hope at the very end of this talk that I'm going to share a link between them. How do these two things, how are they linked together? And I believe they do actually have a link that, that, that I want to challenge you with at the very end. So let's look at the two subjects. The first of the subjects is fasting. And I want you to see three truths about fasting that I hope you and I will apply to our lives at the end of this morning. So let's begin chapter uh, 6, verse 16. Whenever you fast, Jesus said in this sermon, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I think Jesus has three truths that he wants to communicate with us this morning. Here's the first one. Jesus presupposes that we will fast. He presupposes that you will fast. Now, let me be the first to tell you that, if you don't already know this, nowhere in the Bible are you commanded to fast. It does never say, thou shall fast. You, you are to do this. It never says that. Yet, throughout the Old Testament, we read that they fasted. It says things like, when they fasted. They were fasting. So we fasted and pleaded. And if you, if you do a concordance search of the word fasted, you will see that fasting is, all, is interwoven all throughout the Old Testament lives of Old Testament saints. You'll actually find it in the lives of New Testament saints, too, because in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, it says that Paul and Barnabas and the leaders of the church at Antioch were fasting and they were praying, and it was in that context that God directed them. So, so fasting is a part of, of the Old Testament and part of the New Testament. In fact, Isaiah and Joel, they, you know, though fasting is not commanded individually, Joel and Isaiah commanded the people to fast. And here in the ministry of Jesus, he is presupposing that we will fast. And so though it's not commanded of us, I want to make this point, I believe it's true, and that is that the expectation of our Savior is that you and I as followers of Jesus will be involved in fasting. And so that's really the challenge of this first truth. At the end of this morning, I hope that you will not just say, well, that was for someone else. I really hope that you'll say, hey, fasting's for me as a believer. And you will, and you will, can I, I'm going to get off my notes for a second. I want to say something. Listen, preaching and teaching the word of God is the cornerstone, is a cornerstone, if not the cornerstone of our gathering. I mean, the centrality of preaching to, to people who don't know the Lord, preaching is foolishness. To those of us that know the Lord, f preaching is not foolishness. Preaching is, is something that helps us worship. It's something that helps transform our lives. 
And here's one thing I want to challenge you is, I know it's, and I'm just as guilty. This is not pointing at you. This is pointing at me. It's really easy to listen to a pastor preach or a pastor teach. And then when I leave, maybe even moved emotionally, but to leave and not do anything with what I've just heard. And I really want to challenge us, not just today, but every Sunday when we come together, come with this, this a priori commitment that God, as you speak to me, I'm going to try to do something with what you're speaking to me, what you're saying to me. I'm going to try to hone my skills better. I'm going to try to do this if that's what you want me to do. I'm going to try to stop doing that if you want me to stop. Whatever it is, God, I want to try to apply what you're saying to my lives, all right, to my life. And I want you to do that as well. So real quickly, the, the, the point here, I think, is Jesus presupposes that you and I, as followers, his followers, we will fast. Now, real quickly, what is fasting? Fasting in the Bible is going without food or drink and, and for a period of time. And I know you know that. And every time in the Bible, that's what we see. But I believe we can generalize the whole idea of fasting as, as going without something that we treasure, something that we want or appreciate. We can fast that for a season before the Lord. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about fasting sex. And it says that, hey, listen, in a, ma- a married couple is not to fast sex except for a shorter period of time. And it's just for the purpose of praying. So there's something else that the Bible refers to other than, other than food. And Isaiah actually says, hey, the fast that God desires of you is not food fast, but the fast that God desires from you. And I'm paraphrasing Isaiah's words, but it is that you abstain from unrighteousness. And so there, there is, you know, fasting can be more than food, but most every time you find it in the Bible, it's speaking about food or drink. So why does Jesus presuppose we're going to fast? What do we accomplish by fasting? What would be the purpose of fasting? You may be able to find more things than I'm going to mention, but I'm going to give you three. Number one, we fast to express repentance before God. The prophet Joel says to the people of Israel, let's fast in repentance that maybe God might relent and not send this thing that he's promising that he's going to send to us. And so therefore, you know, we, we fast to express repentance. First Samuel 7, 6, when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water, poured it out before the Lord on the day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel in Mizpah at that time. Here's my point. When you sin and you repent, consider fasting as a way of expressing your repentance to the Lord. You know, all of us fail, don't we? And sometimes our failure is big and our repentance is, is bigger. I mean, we, we just, we're broken over our repentance. Consider fasting as a means of expressing repentance to the Lord. Not as a means of gaining repentance, not as a means of somehow gaining favor with God, but out of your repentance, express that repentance through fasting. Here's another reason why people in the Old Testament, people in the New Testament fasted. They fasted to express their dependence on God, their humility. Last week we said that one of the things that we should do when we're praying about our meals is to say, Lord, we are dependent on you. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, pray like this, Lord, give us our daily bread. Because we, we are dependent on you. We need you to do that. And, and so I encouraged you. And by the way, did anybody do that? Don't raise your hand. But you know, this week I have been trying in my prayers at mealtimes to say, Lord, this meal, we're dependent on you for providing this for us. It's been awkward. It's been difficult for me to do that because I'm in such a rote of just saying thank you. But I've been trying to express dependence on the Lord during my mealtime. That's just, that was an application from last week. Fasting expresses dependence 
or humility before the Lord. Listen to Ezra chapter 8 verse 21. And there by the Ahava Canal, I gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us a safe journey and protect our children and our goods as we traveled. They fasted and humbled themselves before God. They fasted as a means of demonstrating humility. And so I would encourage you to fast expressing your humility and your your dependence on the Lord. Make that an avenue of expression to the Lord. And then the third thing that I wrote down is fasting expresses our love for God. Now, now this last one is a stretch. I confess it is. But Anna, remember the 84-year-old woman who's worshiping in the temple every day and she recognizes Jesus in her infant, in his infancy? In Luke 2.37, it says, and when, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, but worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And, and again, I realize it's probably a stretch, but it, but it's almost like it's, I guess it could be humility. She could be expressing humility there, but she could also be expressing love for God. And I want to confess, this is the primary reason I have always fasted. It is, I have fasted to say, Lord, I love you more than food. I value you more than just the things that are for my daily, my daily sustenance. And so I want to encourage you to fast, to fast as a demonstration of your love for the Lord. And I really want to encourage you to do this regularly. And I know that some of you, and I won't name names, there's one person in particular that, that ever since we talked about fasting probably 20 years ago, this person has regularly fasted week after week after week. Now, now I know there's been periods of time when this person has not, and there's been times when I've regularly fasted, and, and it's been a while now since I did. I remember the men's class, when I was in the men's class, we took probably several months of fasting regularly together as a class. Um, but I, I really, listen to me carefully. I believe the first truth that Jesus is teaching us is that he presupposes that we as his followers will be men and women who fast. And I really want to encourage you to do that. Now, I said there's there's three truths about fasting that Jesus wants to convey. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Fasting is meant to be between you and the Lord. And so Jesus says, so when you fast, don't be sad faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive. So their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your father who is in secret. Now, Jesus has already made this point several times when it comes to praying, when it comes to uh, what was the other issue, giving. He says, you know, if you're doing these things so you can be noticed by others and others can say, wow, how spiritual is that person? If that's your motivation, that's as far as it goes. You know, as far as God's concerned, it doesn't, doesn't do anything for the Lord. And so here's what I would challenge you to do. Listen, fast between you and God. It's, it's a private issue between you and, and God. Now, does this mean you, that nobody else can know that you fast? Well, listen, I think it'd be absolutely rude for you to fast and not tell the person who may be cooking your meal whether it's the husband or whether it's the wife, right? Whoever cooks, the other person comes home after they've cooked this huge meal and says, oh, by the way, I'm fasting today. That's rude, right? So Jesus is not trying to tell us that no one can know. What he's trying to say is the thing he said all along every time. It's if that is your motivation so that other people will know, then you've missed the point. Because this is something where you express repentance before God, you express your your humility before God, you express your repentance, humility, or your love for God. This between you and the Lord. And the third truth that he gives us is this. Our fasting pleases God. And the very last thing that Jesus said, and your father who sees in secret, because you're fasting just between him and you. I mean, he, he will reward you. 
Now, I don't mean to motivate you with reward. I don't think Jesus means to motivate you with reward either. But I think what he's trying to say is that your fasting between you and God, it's something that pleases the Lord. So, you know, if you were to choose today to say, you know, I'm going to make fasting a regular part of my life. I'm going to express my repentance, my dependence, my my love for God through through fasting. However, you might feel led to do that and you do it for the Lord. Then it's something that pleases and blesses him. And again, I'm really not trying to manipulate you. I'm, I'm really trying to make you think. But as a follower of Jesus, is your heart to please the Lord? And you don't have to answer, but I, I know it is. Obviously, this is something we can do that has that brings pleasure to the Lord. By the way, even as singing, when we come together as the congregation and we sing in the Psalms that we read this morning at the beginning, it pleases the Lord for us to sing. Why do why should you sing? You should sing not so that everybody else can hear you. You should sing because it pleases the Lord. You know, the Church of the Holy Spirit in Congo, they, they fast every Tuesday. They fast every Tuesday as a church. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. We, we did that as a men's class for a while. And remember, we just said that fasting is really a, it's an individual thing, not so much a group thing. Again, I, I, I think it's, it's very permissible for us to fast as a group. But the Church of the Holy Spirit fasts every Tuesday there in the Congo uh, as an act of worship to God. But let me challenge you to consider that. After fasting, the subject in the sermon turns. And here Matthew records for us that the issue becomes our possessions. And the issue becomes materialism. Verse 19. Don't collect for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can be a slave of two masters, since we, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then this, then this t- statement, you cannot be slaves of both God and of money. A rich man had a, a terrible attitude, and uh, he met with a, a local pastor who was living a very simple life, and they were together, and the pastor thought of a very, um, you know, a very great way of illustrating to this rich man his attitude, and his attitude being that, that which was wrong. And he took him over to a window, and he said, look out this window and tell me what you see. And the man looked out the window, and he said, I see some men, women, and children. Fine. Then the pastor led him over to a mirror, and he said, now tell me what you see. The man frowned and he said, obviously, I see myself. Interesting, replied the pastor. In the window, there is glass. In the mirror, there is glass. But the glass of the mirror is covered with a little bit of silver. And no sooner is the silver added than you cease to see others, only yourself. Now, here's here's the pastor's point in that little illustration that if our focus becomes the silver of our lives, then, then all we see is ourselves. Can I tell you something? If you have been blessed with prosperity, you are blessed. But you know what? If all you see because of your financial prosperity are your finances and your money and your possessions, if that's all you see, then you are cursed. We must seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In fact, next Sunday, as we talk about the end of chapter six, that's going to be part of our focus. Okay. But, but here's what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21. Lay up treasure for yourself, 
Just make sure you're laying it up in the right, in the right place. Do not live for material possessions that won't last. Instead, live for what Peter tells us to live for in 1 Peter 1.4. Listen, and I quote, An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let me bottom line this. Let me bottom line this for us. It is not wrong for us to have possessions. What's wrong is when our possessions have us. And that's, that's, not, that's not my statement. I read that, but I loved it. It's not wrong for us to have possessions. It's wrong when our possessions have us. Now, I entitled this talk, Living in Light of Eternity. How do I do that? How do I keep from having my possessions possess me? How do I live in light of eternity rather than living for right now? I think Jesus is going to give us uh, three answers, three helps in that. Here's the first one. Determine, determine where your treasure will be. He starts in verse 19 with this prohibition. Do not lay up For yourselves, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do you know in the Near East back then, your wardrobe was considered part of your wealth? It's why in 2 Kings 5.22, Gehazi tried to tried to trick Naaman out of two wardrobes, right? It's why Achan in, uh, in Joshua 7.21 stole one of the beautiful cloaks from Jericho because your wealth was defined by your clothes. Jesus said... You know, don't put, don't treasure your clothes because the moths eat them. Precious metals were also considered part of one's wealth. Jesus said, don't put your treasures in, in metals that corrode and rust. Other values in our house, other valuables would be stashed in our house. Jesus said, hey, thieves break through those very penetrable walls to steal your valuables. Don't, don't, don't make that where your treasure is. So verse 20, he gives us a parallel exhortation to that first prohibition. And here's the exhortation. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. Now notice this. Jesus addresses what he's addressing here is not it's not whether you should lay up treasure. It's where your treasure should be. It's where you should put your treasure. And so I got two thoughts on that. Number one, the location of our treasure is either earth or heaven. All right. But but I think this indicates a certain perspective. I don't think Jesus is talking about treasure in the disembodied state, this middle state in between when we die and when we're resurrected. I think Jesus is talking about treasures for all eternity. They're the treasures for that, that will last into the new heaven and to the new earth and our resurrected lives. Jesus is saying, store up treasures for eternity, for eternity come, not for just right now. But it's not just the, the location doesn't just talk about our perspective. It also talks about the character of the treasure. He says, make it be spiritual treasure, not worldly treasure. Laying up treasures on earth speaks of selfishness, worldliness, materialism, and even covetousness. And those things that we store up are material possessions. Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, which speak to the things that are spiritual in nature. They speak to our fellowship with God. They speak to this eternal perspective that that my eternity is not limited to these 70 years now, but my future is limited to my entire immortal life with God. And he said, when you treasure things, treasure things with that perspective and that character. Now, let me point out some things about the words that Jesus uses here. And literally, Jesus is saying this. Do not treasure your treasures on earth, but treasure your treasures in heaven. 
And in verse 19, the grammatical emphasis there in the Greek basically is stop doing something you're already doing. So literally, it's stop treasuring your treasures on earth, but continue to treasure your treasures in heaven. If we're, if we're going to live with our treasures in heaven, we have to determine where our treasure is going to be. You have to determine what am I, where am I going to place my treasures? What is my treasure going to persist of? In Proverbs 23, 4 through 5, it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle towards heaven. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his good income. This is all vanity. Matthew 16.26, Jesus confronts a guy who has spent his whole life getting money. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Here's what Jesus is saying. Where your treasure is, what you determine to be your treasure, is where your heart is going to be. Wherever your treasure is. I mean, if it's it's in money and possessions, that's where your heart is going to be. If your treasure is in in things for eternity and your relationship with God and all that God has planned in the future, if that's where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. So here's a question I ask myself. Which comes first? Does your heart decide and your treasure follow? Or does your treasure go first and your heart follow? Think about it for just a second. Which goes first? Does my heart decide where my treasure is going to be and then my treasure follows that decision, what I'm going to treasure? Or does where my treasure, does my heart follow where my treasure already is? You know what the answer is? This, I gave this a lot of thought. Here's the answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is both of them are true. Okay. Here's what I want you to listen. I want you to hear this. I am a willful creature. I am not an animal. You are not an animal. You are not driven by instinct. You are not instinctually driven by your nature. You have been made in the, in the image of the living God. And with that comes the ability to make decisions and to willfully decide. So here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying that you're different from the animals and you can make a decision what you will treasure, what you will value. And so in Matthew 6.21, Jesus explicitly tells us that if a man chooses to treasure heaven, then his heart's going to follow that. And you know, here's how I think it works. And the more I treasure that, and the more I put my my treasure there, the, the more my heart's going to want to put my treasure there. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a cycle that goes like this. As I choose to treasure heaven and my treasures are in heaven, then my heart wants to choose it even more and more, or it works the other way. It goes downhill. You treasure the things of the earth, then the more your heart is there, the more you treasure them. And somewhere or another, you, you have to break that, that, you have to break that spiral if it's downward. And you have to say, hey, I'm going to choose to treasure that which is in heaven. In Matthew 16, 22, this guy comes to Jesus and he says, man, I want to treasure things in heaven. I want to have eternal life. I want that to be the most valuable thing for me. And you remember what Jesus told him, and he says, divest yourself of your wealth and come and follow me. And the Bible says the young man, you know, first of all, Jesus was not condemning the rich and calling us all to poverty. That's not what he was doing. What he was doing was putting his finger on, on what this man treasured the most. And the Bible tells us that he went away sad, not willing to do what it was that Jesus called him to do. 
which was to stop treasuring his earthly possessions and to treasure God more than that. He was unwilling to do that. Here's the danger and power of materialism. And this is why Jesus is admonishing us as his followers. Treasure, stop treasuring your treasures here and treasure your treasure in heaven. Why? Because the danger of materialism is it, it pulls you away from God. It's gonna, listen, the more you, the more you value wealth and things of this nature, the, the more you will stop treasuring God and eternal life. How do you do this? Determine, determine, decide where will my treasure be? Make a decision. I believe you can do that. I believe that you, you listen, you young people, I believe you can make a decision today of what you're going to treasure, where you're going to invest your life. And here's what I want to tell you. The more you invest your heart in what you will treasure, the more your heart is going to be there. You follow me? But it begins, it begins, I believe, with a decision, us determining where, where will my treasure be. Here's the second thing Jesus says, and this could be just another way of saying the same thing. Maybe this is just a nuanced difference of, of saying the same thing. Here's the second thing. He says, direct what your focus will be. The next statement seems to be somewhat peculiar, doesn't it? But it's really fitting when you understand it. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Here's what Jesus is saying. You know, the eye was considered to be the gateway to your heart. It was considered to be the gateway to your personhood. And so Jesus said, and he uses this metaphor. He says, you know, if your eye is set... On, on heavenly treasures, if that's where your eye is set, then he uses the metaphor of light. Then your whole body is going to be filled with light. But if your eye is set on, on worldly treasures, on things of this earth, he said, and again, he uses the metaphor of darkness. He says, your whole body is going to be filled with darkness. And then he makes this statement. He says, and how dark is that darkness if your focus is on just the things of this earth and the money and the riches and the power and the possessions that we have? He said, how dark is that darkness? So the question would be then, where is the focus of my eyesight? Where am I looking at? Am I looking at treasures with the Lord or am I looking at the things that this world has to offer? We're going to talk about this next week, Matthew 6, 33, but it comes to play here. Jesus will follow this up by saying, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness and everything else. All these other things that you're worried about, they'll take care of themselves. Keep your focus on heavenly treasure and your possessions will not possess you. And then the third thing Jesus says, he says, determine where your treasure is going to be. And then he says, direct what your focus will be and then decide who is going to be Lord. And again, maybe these are three ways of saying the very same thing. But verse 24, he says, no one can be a slave of two masters. And we as Americans say, well, that surely doesn't apply to me. I don't have any master. I'm an American. He goes on, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. But here's where he makes it really clear for us as Americans in particular. He says, you cannot be slaves of God and of money. There is always going to be a tension between the material things that we have in this life and God. And I think God is saying, I know the biggest rival. You know what it is? It's your things. It's your stuff. It's your money, your pursuit of wealth, your pursuit of security, the big bank accounts. So you so you're never going to be stuck. The pursuit of whatever that represents to you and God. 
And so Jesus, and Jesus is telling us here, he says, decide who's going to be Lord. Is it going to be money and security and possessions and things? Or is it going to be me? And so you and I have to, we have to choose who is going, who is going to be Lord. You know, we're back in football season and, and this is a good illustration, but a football team can't have two head coaches. You know why? Because if it had two head coaches, the players wouldn't know who's in charge. And not knowing who's in charge, they're going to gravitate to the one they like the best or the one they want the most. And what's going to end up happening is you've got a recipe for a divided team. There can only be one head coach. There can only be one guy who's calling the shots at the end of the day on a football team. This is what, this is what God is saying to us. Money and God cannot call the shots in our lives. You know, our desire for, for things and our desire for pleasure and our desire for everything this world has to offer, that cannot call the shots and God call the shots. We have to decide who is going to be Lord. And, and the implication is obvious. And again, it goes what, what, what I just said a minute ago. You have to decide. You determine. You determine who's going to be Lord in my life. That's what Jesus always, he was always asking us. Will I be Lord of your life? Will you follow me? Will I be your Lord? Remember Jesus, the guy who saves up all kinds of money and, uh, and, he, and he has all his barns. Remember what Jesus asked? He says, what does it profit a man if he gains everything over here, but at the end of the day loses his eternal, his eternal being, his soul? What is, what is it going to matter to you as 75 years you walk in plush luxury, living as, with money as your, as your God, only at the end of the day to lose eternal life, lose immortality with God, and, and lose every relationship? I mean, you know, Lou talked about Max Lucado, in, in losing every relationship that's been valuable to you, losing all of that. I don't know about you, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose my relationship with you. We're going to be brothers and sisters in the family of God forever, forever. And, and so we have to decide, you know, who is going to be to be Lord. Now, let me just presuppose for a moment that you choose God. You choose God. I, I want Jesus to be Lord in my life, not possessions and money. Can I tell you, it, you know this, I know you know, but let me just say it out loud. That is not a one time decision. I mean, I have to fight that decision all the time. Who's going to be Lord in my life? Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be Jimmy? And if it's going to be Jimmy, what I'm really talking about is the things that Jimmy wants, right? And so I'm, I'm constantly struggling with who's going to be Lord? Is it Jimmy or is it my possessions? And, and so this, I don't think it's just a one-time decision. I, I believe it begins as a one-time decision, but it's something I'm going to be doing daily, choosing to make Jesus Lord and to surrender myself to Him, to follow Him. Now, I, I want to share with you something that, that Andy Stanley said that I, I think is just so helpful in, 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 in not letting money and possessions be my Lord. And, and this, this is what Andy said. He said, three words can keep us here. And, uh, and again, you may not agree with this, and this, but this is why I think he's right. He said the three words are give, save, and live in that order. Give, save, and live in that order. In other words, how do I fight, how do I fight my possessions not possessing me? How, how do I fight, say, Jesus, your Lord, those things over there, I mean, I need them, they're important, but they don't possess me. And Andy suggested three words, and let me share them with you again. Give, save and uh, and live. Here's what here's what here's what Andy means by that. He says, you know when it comes to to your life, 
give. Live generously. Relinquish greed and live open-handedly. And I think this is what Jesus would tell us. In Luke 6, 38, he says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know, folks, when you get paid, the very first thing you ought to do with your check is you ought to give part of it away. You ought to determine what you're going to give. And you ought to give it away. You ought to develop a giving plan if you don't already have a giving plan. This is what God is saying, Andy says. This is what you're saying when you say when you choose to give. And I quote Andy. God, I will not be ruled by my stuff. I will not be owned by the things I own. My hands are open. The first fruits of my labor belong to you. I really want to challenge you to develop generosity in giving. I think the key to not letting my possessions possess me is to give them away and to start right there. I think Andy's absolutely right. George Mueller, we all probably know who he is, especially if we grew up in the church, but, but George Mueller was a man who basically funneled and channeled by prayer millions of dollars to provide for orphans there in England, okay? But what you may not know, and I didn't know this, but what you may not know was that George Mueller funneled literally, you know, how much percentage of his money, I don't know, of his personal support to the Lord's work. Did you know that from 1870 on, George Mueller personally contributed the full support for 20 missionaries with the China Inland Mission? Now, obviously, you know, I can't imagine that their level of support percentage-wise is what it takes for, for us to send someone today. But George Mueller funded 20 missionaries with the China Inland Mission. From 1831 to 1885, he gave away 86% of his personal income. As the Lord prospered him, he could have lived in style, but he didn't. He lived generously. You know, I, when I read that about George Mueller, you know who came to mind? I've quoted him many times. I've talked about him many times. And that was John Wesley. Remember John Wesley lived on a certain percentage of his money. And, and I think it was like 90% and 20% at the beginning. By the end of his life, he was giving. Or that doesn't add up, does it? 90 and 20. Sorry about that. 80 and 20 or whatever. I'm making the numbers up. But that's how it was, right? He he. He lived on, a, on most of it because he had to. But by the time his life was ended, he was living on 20%, only about the same amount of money and giving 80% of his, of his personal income away. I'm challenging us. I'm challenging me. Let's be men and women who give. Here's the second thing, Andy said. You save. You don't hoard, but you save. The Lord Jesus instructs us to save. All of you ought to be savers. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Proverbs 21, 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it all. Jesus wants us to say, he wants you to be a saver. You know, you know the way your possessions don't possess you is, is you, you don't have to have them. And you give and then you save. You save what you can, but you don't hoard. Listen, in, in Luke 20, 20, or 12, 20 and 21, Jesus tells the guy who's built all those barns, remember that? He says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And who's going to get all that stuff that you've been hoarding? Who's going to get it all? It's not you. And I, and I realize hoarding is a bad word in our, we, that we call that a disease. But you understand what I'm saying? We do not have to have, we do not have to save tons and tons and tons of money. You know, uh, we, we save for what we need, but then we, 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 we try to live generously. 
And then the final thing that Andy said, and again, I think this is the order. This is how possessions don't possess us. We give, we save, and then we live. And the third aspect is that, hey, we consume the fruits of our labor. God knows you have needs. He understands things that are priority needs for you, and he needs you to spend on them. He wants you to spend on them. Paul said, I've learned to be content whether I have a lot to spend on my needs or whether I don't. I've learned to be content because God's going to provide for my needs. So supply and give, save and keep, and then spend and consume in that order. And I want to say this. You know, if we don't, if we don't have all three of those things, man, I would just challenge you. It has money become your master. If possessions become your master, if you don't have all three of those things. I said at the beginning, there's a link between these two subjects of fasting and materialism. And, and here's the link, I believe. The link is found in Jesus' challenge to us and call to us. Numerous times Jesus says this. If any man wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. You know, the link between fasting and material and, and living as Jesus is Lord rather than material. You know what it is? It's the denial of myself. It's denying myself for the purpose of, of loving God, demonstrating God's love, demonstrating my love to God, demonstrating my dependence on God, fasting and surrender of material things. I mean, that, that's, what's at the key, that's what's at the core of both of those things. It's, it's me denying myself, taking up my cross, and being willing to follow him. Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think what Jim had in mind there was your life, right? He's no fool, gives up his very life, which he cannot keep, to gain eternal life, which he cannot lose. I think that's what Jim probably had in mind, but it surely applies to every possession I have. He's no fool who gives up everything he has in this life to gain that which he cannot lose, and that is eternal reward with the Father. Remember, the moth and the rust and the thief can steal our treasures here. But they cannot touch our treasures with the Father. So this day, I call on you all to choose who you will serve. Who will you serve? Who's going to be your master? Is it going to be your possessions or is it going to be God? Is it going to be your money or is it going to be the Lord Jesus? Choose you today. And I want to invite you to make a serious decision this morning to choose Jesus. So I want to ask you to bow your heads and your hearts. Draw me close to you, Lord. Never let me go. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You know, the challenge this morning is for you to lay it all down. For you, Maybe some of you have laid it down in the past and you've picked it back up. Uh, it's really easy to get back on the throne of your, the throne of your heart. And maybe this morning it's time for you to, to get back off that throne again. To say, Lord, I, I've stepped back up there. You know, I've been guiding and directing my own life. You haven't been Lord of my life. I just want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond to God. Lord, you're all I want. More, more than my big house and my big boat and all the toys and trinkets that this world might have to offer. Lord, you, you are more valuable than all of those. Father, help me to choose you. To determine, Lord, that my treasure will not be the things of this earth, but my treasure will be you and your kingdom and the immortality and eternal life that you promised me in Christ. 
Father, teach me what it means to focus my attention on you and to not look to all the things this world has to offer. Lord, may my life be filled with light because my focus is you, the one who is the light of the world. Lord, chase any darkness out of my heart because my focus is you and my eye is clear because my focus is you and your kingdom. Help me, Father, decide that you are Lord. You are Lord of my life now and every day and every moment. May you be always Lord. Forgive me for the times I step back up and and try to usurp your position. Forgive me and help me. Help me to make you Lord. I, I know you've said I cannot serve my possessions in you. It's one or the other. So teach me, help me, Holy Spirit, to, to walk submitted to you. Help me to adopt the order of possessions, Lord, that you desire for me to give, to save, and to live. Help me not to reverse that, Lord. Lord, receive the worship of our heart as we raise it before you, Lord. Help us to, you know, leave here today just with you as Lord of our life. We thank you, Jesus, for the eternal life that you give us by faith. Lord, we recognize that no amount of Surrender possessions, no amount of, of choosing to order our life according to your morality saves us. Lord, we recognize that we are saved by the work of Christ in Christ alone. We trust you, Christ. We, we, we rest in you and you alone, but yet at the same time, we desire to live as you are Lord. So help us. Lord, use our church family. Use our church family to impact Surrey and all the white counties and beyond. Lord, use us to change the world. Lord, may people note the difference in us because Christ is Lord, because Christ lives within us and lives. You live your life through us, Lord. So I pray that people will notice, notice Christ in us, not us, but notice you and love you, fall in love with you and follow you. Lord, use us, your church, to bring glory to your name, honor to your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.